0: From the McCorney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: I'm Candace Watts-Smith.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli and welcome to Democracy Works. This week we are talking about book bans and our guest is Jonathan Friedman, who is the Director of Free Expression and Education at PEN America. So very timely conversation, but you know, Michael, what exactly are we talking about here when we use this phrase book ban?
0: Yeah. So Jenna, once again, we're talking a bit about uh, school board politics and what's going on in the American public schools. And what a, what a good choice of a guest to use somebody from Penn to talk about this issue that we're all hearing about these days. I mean, along with Penn, I think we're thinking of a book ban as, as pretty much anything that involves an action taken against a book by a school board or school administration based on its content and predicated by some kind of challenge from parents or people within the community. So this doesn't have to be an outright ban of a book. It could be. It could be removing the book from the library, taking the book off the curriculum, or raising other kinds of concerns about the book, something having to do with the content of the book.
1: Of course we know, you know, book bans are never about the books. They're usually about some effort to shape public discourse, to determine what's important to kind of put your flag down on what's mainstream who's allowed in who's not allowed and you know i think book banning is like the original the like grandparent of cancel culture you know there's always kind of a lineage to this tactic and this strategy and we've seen it time and again You know, one of the things that comes to mind or came to mind as I was thinking about Jonathan's contribution here and Pen America's contribution is Frederick Douglass's autobiography, where he talks about um, the first time he really got an argument about abolitionism was by the man who owned him. And he was chastising his wife about teaching enslaved people to read because that would give them too many ideas. That would broaden their perspective and outlook on what's possible. And so, you know, we look across history, across the globe. We see when book bans are, you know, they show up. World War II, the Cold War, the 1980s around, you know, creationism, you know, and, and now, right? But they ultimately are often, you know, they've served a kind of mitigate challenges to those who see themselves on, you know, as the prototypical, you know, in this case, American. But, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that we just kind of want to pin down or just maybe even think about is, you know, like who should even decide what children, what children learn, which books they should see, which ones they shouldn't see. And there are a lot of actors out there that have a stake in this, right? There are parents,
0: and uh, we've been hearing a lot from parents, uh, but there's also the community, which includes parents, but is not exclusively made up with parents because the schools do belong to the community, and they play a very important democratic role uh, within the community. But then there's also the experts, uh, experts in subject matter, experts in educational theory, and of course we expect them to have a role. And uh, you know, standing at the middle of it all are teachers. And whether or not we want teachers to act independently based on what they think is best or whether or not we think they need to be directed on what they can do by schools or by states by the state in some way or by some of these other actors. But there is a sense, and I think it's, it is growing and it's becoming more and more powerful, and I know we've seen it in our polling at, at uh, the McCourney Institute, that conservatives in particular seem to think that these decisions should be up to the parents. Uh, but the kind of argument that you were making before is, to me, why these kinds of decisions should be up to the community and why they should be up to even higher level state authorities that are in a position to make a decision about you know what what kinds of democratic citizens we're trying to develop and educate if you say to people should we ban books they're going to say no mm-hmm. <laughs> but then what we ask them is who should be deciding a variety mm-hmm. of issues and, mm-hmm. and those issues had to do with for example sex education race and racial history, evolution, creationism, and uh, COVID restrictions. So we asked about all four. Mm-hmm. But instead of asking people what their position was on the particular policy, mm-hmm. we didn't kids wear a mask. we said, who should decide? Mm. And that's where really, to me, interesting partisan differences emerge that say a lot about our contemporary politics. And so Republicans... Are far more likely than Democrats to say that parents should decide. or mm-hmm. are on some issues than others, but for the but they are the most likely across the two part across partisans of both sides to say that parents should decide. Democrats are much more willing to put that power into the hands of teachers or into the hands of what you might think of as experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, or into the hands of uh, even school boards who represent the community. Uh, So where you see the real difference is not necessarily on the policy, but who should decide.
2: And I think we've set the stage here about this who decides question. Jonathan will certainly pick up on that as well. But let's go now to the interview with Jonathan Friedman. Jonathan Friedman, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
2: You know, the anti-democratic forces in our culture, uh, as we've talked about on the show before, are very good about uh, controlling the narrative and sometimes distorting the meanings of words and phrases. And so I thought it would be helpful to kick off this conversation about book banning with a bit of of a definition. Uh, Would you mind telling us in Pan America's eyes what a book ban is and perhaps what it is not?
3: Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, confusion on this point, so I appreciate the chance to clear it up. So there is a sense in some cases that a book ban only refers to one very narrow kind of thing, which is a school district saying this book is absolutely banned and nobody uh, in the school can get it. And that is indeed one form of book bans. But in our work... We also look at uh, book bans that take place where a school district des- decrees a book off limits either for a classroom or a library, but not necessarily the other, or when it decrees a book off limits for a certain grade when up to that point it had been there. And the reason is because, yes, you can have school districts reevaluate and through committee review processes, decide that a book might be uh, better left for kids that are uh, that are older or, or have an age difference, uh, be restricting it for an older age. But in many circumstances, what we're talking about are situations where one parent or maybe a few parents decide that something that their child accessed was inappropriate, and therefore they decide that that book must not be accessible for anyone else so at the root of book banning we're talking about that desire or that effort by somebody to exert control Over what everybody else has access to. So when I'm talking about book bans, I'm talking about a range of decisions that are being taken at schools. In some cases, we're talking about books that are being de facto banned by being restricted. So for example, if a school library says you can't take out this book without explicit permission, with a permission slip, meaning you're a student, you want to read that book, you need to go to some special shelf, maybe behind a reference desk, you need to bring it to the librarian, the librarian has to look up if you have a permission slip in the system before you could, what, open the book, read the title, read the back cover. It just seems so uh, wholly undemocratic. And that's the kind of censorship that we are seeing seep into schools.
2: So I know that Pen America has been tracking this activity for a long time, and you've published uh, reports and and pieces about, you know, when this happened in the 80s, for example, the kind of Jerry Falwell era, like that period of time. Can you just sort of uh, take us back a little bit and maybe compare and contrast what we saw in that era versus what we're seeing today.
3: Yeah, book bands have always come in waves. There was an effort in the late 70s and early 80s to uh, have conservative activists, some parents bring a list of books to some of their school districts and remove them and that most closely parallels what we're seeing right now. But what is different right now and what is really unprecedented here is the involvement of politicians, political groups and this isn't just about, you know, one group in one part of the country. This is spreading to numerous states and it is spreading fast. And so you have in our report that looked at book bans from July of 2021 to March of 2022, uh, a number of cases where politicians got involved sent letters to school districts. Sometimes, like in one case in Texas, a politician who was running for attorney general sent a list of 850 books he wanted investigated to all school districts across Texas. And that has led to many of those schools, quote unquote, investigating, meaning pulling the books from the shelves. And you know, this isn't a request from a parent or anybody who read any of these books. It's not even clear how he got to 850. Most people believe that it was through some kind of keyword search looking up words like LGBTQ or racism or diversity. So, it's highly highly concerning that that would be what is driving policies in school libraries and school districts. And even right now, as we speak, there's one in Kansas where a GOP state representative has told a specific school district he wants a very specific book, Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi, removed from the shelves. And when the superintendent told the representative, well, you can submit a a petition, a challenge, an objection, and we have a process, the state representative had says, no, I want you to remove it Right now, because he wants it. And that is an alarming overreach by a government official who should know that that's not what they're supposed to be doing in their positions of power. Even in moments in the United States where we have single party rule, etc., there is meant to be a notion that we live in a diverse pluralistic society that people can disagree. And in fact, it is a core part of the First Amendment that government is not supposed to suppress freedom of expression, including the freedom to write, the freedom to read, the freedom to think. But that's what's happening.
2: Right. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, several books or, or perhaps you know, many of them currently, the, the books in question deal with issues of, of race and gender and identity and these sorts of things. Is it that perhaps another difference between this era and, and previous eras where there it's there's a sort of laser focus on these, you know, couple of issues?
3: There is a bit of a difference there, whereas previous eras may be focused a little bit more on profanity or um, other aspects of things that somebody finds offensive. But, you know, no, there, there are ways that people have always found something offensive in books that they don't like. And there is a long, really long history of suppression and censorship of LGBTQ content in particular, and in particular labeling such content obscene and pornographic and illegal and barring it from circulating, even when it has nothing to do with sexual uh, conduct whatsoever, just by virtue of uh being, you know, homosexual, queer in nature, etc. But the other thing that is really striking and we have to bear in mind here is that even 5 years ago, a lot of the books that are now being challenged were barely on school library shelves. They were barely even written or published. So there has been in many ways a huge increase, maybe you could say it's still not fully reflective of the diversity of the population in the United States, but there has been an increase in writers of color in LGBTQ writers and in in stories that reflect, you know, their realities. So as we have tried to, through publishing and through children's literature in particular, provide a more accurate, perhaps, and, you know, just div- diverse forms of representation, now we are seeing a backlash toward that. So mm-hmm. the reason why we haven't seen so many challenges to LGBTQ characters in books in school libraries is because until relatively recently, there literally weren't any and the number of people who are adults now who maybe grew up with same-sex parents who would say that they never read a book with same-sex parents uh, that they weren't represented in children's books i mean i'm i cannot remember in my years in school ever seeing an lgbtq character normalized that way not even like a random character in the back of a book about other things so we're talking about a whole form of representation that has until very recently been relatively unusual and, and not acceptable at all in the mainstream. And now that it has gained even just a modicum of mainstream presence. I mean, it's not like this is really in most schools curriculum. We're talking about books that people voluntarily decide to read in the library or that their parents seek out. Now, in response to that, we're seeing this backlash.
2: Are there commonalities to the process by which school librarians and other school officials consider whether or not to, to make a book available to students?
3: So this is the precise issue that came up in the 1982 Supreme Court case called PICO, which was all about this question, the question of process. And what that decision held was essentially that school boards and school districts should not engage in ad hoc or highly irregular processes to remove books essentially just pulling a book at the drop of a hat that they needed well established considered uh, regular programs or or ways and policies for book reviews to happen and that is speaks so profoundly to what we're seeing right now, which is in many cases, this knee jerk move and response to petitions to remove books. Now, the way that this should work has been recommended by the American Library Association, as well as the National Coalition Against Censorship. And they have detailed guidelines and many school districts actually, even in places where they're not following the guidelines, this is what they have on the books. So it's not always the same, but it looks something like this. A petitioner can fill out a form. They are supposed to put that form in writing so that there's a specific complaint. It's not just a general, vague, I found this book offensive. They are supposed to, through the written form, demonstrate that they actually read the book. And again, that's something in a lot of places. The people who are filing these complaints are even admitting they haven't read the books. So they're supposed to write these forms. The forms are supposed to go to the school level first, at which point the principal is meant to form uh, a committee, usually of educators, media specialists, librarians, parents, teachers, maybe students or school administrators, too, who would then get together, read the book, talk about it, but also undergo some kind of formal training, exposure, conversation about the purposes of a school library. So the whole point here isn't just that you are deputizing people to make a decision. You're uh, encouraging them to become informed citizens who understand their responsibilities here, which is that a library is meant to serve everybody. And so even if you personally don't like the book, if four or five people on the committee do, maybe you shouldn't be pushing to remove it. Or let's say, let say five people want to remove, but only one wants it there. Shouldn't we consider that one person's uh, preference too? And so there is this sort of uh, notion here that's supposed to come out through this process, which is to be reflective of, frankly, a degree of minority opinions. But anyways, once that committee comes to a decision, it is then supposed to go up to a district level if it is appealed. So it is absolutely not meant to be the case that this is, uh, uh, that a book could be complained about on Monday and removed by Tuesday. This is meant to take deliberation, consideration. So
2: if, as you say, there are these processes in place, why are we seeing such seemingly knee-jerk reactions from school districts when these challenges come from state lawmakers?
3: I think that what we are living through is uh, something that I have called the Ed Scare, and it really echoes the Red Scares of the past, and that's why I call it that. And it is a moral panic concentrated on schools, colleges, and universities, and it threatens to totally destabilize and undermine public education as many of us know it, and it is that Head scare, it is that political climate, the fear of backlash that is driving school administrators. So in a particular district in Florida, Walton County, there was recently a removal of 58 books after a group circulated a list of these books that they deemed inappropriate to the school district. But In that particular case, the school uh, superintendent, in fact, said that he was removing the books, even though he, quote, hadn't read a single paragraph of any of these books. And he said he was removing them in order to protect people in the district from perilous circumstances in the context of the current Florida legislative session. So you you have to look at this as the incredible impact of politics playing out in school districts where there's a great deal of fear and essentially what is happening is that if anybody says that there is a reason to be angry at a school the school seems to be under such concern and pressure that they would like to immediately uh, resolve it by doing whatever anybody is asking them. And so that is a way in which it seems like school districts and superintendents are increasingly being held hostage by uh, some of the policies that are being purported by uh, and, and being advanced by politicians.
2: Hello,
4: Democracy Works listeners. I want to suggest another podcast to you. It's called The Great Battlefield and it covers the progressive political ecosystem. The host is Nathaniel Perlman, founder of democratic political software company NGP Van and the visual storytelling firm Graphicacy. Nathaniel interviews key leaders, reformers, organizers, and political entrepreneurs who are working to preserve and improve our democracy. The podcast has a wide breadth and a great diversity of guests and a library of more than 750 episodes to explore, with three new interviews arriving every week. For instance, he recently spoke with Mike Madrid about the Hispanic vote and co-founding The Lincoln Project, and with Anna Galland about her time as executive director of MoveOn, to name just two. If you want to understand innovators in the progressive space, this is for you. You can find The Great Battlefields wherever podcasts are found.
2: And can you talk a little bit about the role that the internet has played in kind of spreading all of this? I've, I've read news reports about groups like Moms for Liberty, like, you know, they could just spring up and share information in a way that would not have been possible in, in previous eras.
3: Yes, I don't think this would have been possible without the internet. You have groups of parents and or even just citizens in different parts of the country who are meeting each other online and perhaps being radicalized there, and that is how excerpts of books are basically being traded across the internet so that People can get angry about them in different parts of the country, excerpts, lists, uh, arguments to be made about how a book is particularly a form of uh, somehow inappropriate, and also just mimicking the same tactics. So if you are looking at Florida and you say, look, this group just sent a list to all the school districts in Florida, and in a few of them, they just removed everything on our list. Why wouldn't you try the same thing in Virginia, in Ohio, in Texas, in Tennessee? And so there has been a, a mimicking of tactics and a spreading of information. And it's very clear that in many parts of the country, this is not the spontaneous result of parents and children reading any of these books, actually. In case in point, in Walton County, they banned 58 books, but only 24 of them were actually on the shelves. They banned the books before even checking what was in their holding that's the urgency and panic that appears to have set in there but that's also the fact that the challenge isn't even being made about a book anybody got in the district the challenge is being based on some list so this is totally outside of the ways that this is supposed to work in policies and that also reflects you know that level uh, that role and that also reflects the role of the internet that it's playing in all of
2: this mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so you were just talking about several different states there. I I know Pan America maintains a database of these bans and these actions. Can you just give us a sense of what the scale is here roughly? uh, You know, how many states, how many districts, how many bans? Like, what's the kind of scope of of what we're talking about here?
3: As of now, our records are limited to the period of July 2021 to March 22. And uh, what I can tell you is that on April 1st, there was a whole bunch of new book bans and even you know throughout the month of April. So we haven't updated our, our numbers uh, to be totally currently up to date. But in that nine month period, we found 26 states had school districts that had banned books and 86 districts within those states. And we looked at the number of students who enroll in public schools in those districts and it totaled 2 million students. And so it's clear this is happening all over Some states like Texas, Pennsylvania, and Florida are the current hot zones, I would say, today. But there have been moments in the past six months where that was somewhere else. And uh, in Tennessee, for example, although there isn't a lot of Activity that has been successful at banning books in particular school districts. Right now, there is a political movement, a bill that is going to allow the governing party to appoint a partisan committee to make a list of all books that are deemed appropriate in schools. And if the book is not on the list, the school libraries are going to have to pull it. And there's a lot of uh, evidence and energy in Tennessee, in particular, against LGBTQ representation in schools and curriculum. And so it would not surprise me to see that that partisan committee carrying forth its work in a way that results in book banning across the state. And it's uh, really quite draconian to think of, particularly because even when we are talking about the way this is supposed to work, it is meant to be a deeply local community-based process.
2: So you mentioned that the Supreme Court case earlier, PICO, what is the sort of legal framework here? Is that, you know, balancing the rights of students and, you know, schools, of course, being public entities, like how do all of these things interplay with one another?
3: Well, I would say that When we get into talking about the First Amendment and constitutional rights in the school setting, we have to recognize that there are numerous groups who may have some kind of right in the situation, but students are among them. And it was decided in Tinker v. Des Moines in uh, the 1970s that students do not lose their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gates. And so in PICO, that idea held some sway. And so there was a a similar notion that there should be some kind of special protection, in particular for school libraries, maybe not for school curriculum, but in particular for school libraries, which are spaces of voluntary inquiry. And that notion has guided most school districts when dealing with these challenges to books, Well, until now. And so the trick is to figure out a way to uphold students' rights in these processes and recognize that commitment to, again, not suppressing based on hostility to any particular ideas and uh, recognizing that we live in a diverse, pluralistic society where different students and different parents might have different ideas about at what age different books can be read. Yeah, I'll take that.
2: Uh, Is is there anything else you've been seeing or, you know, hearing about as you talk to librarians and, and teachers and students on the ground other, you know, what are they doing to to kind of push back against this?
3: One of the things that we've seen a lot of are groups of students getting together to form banned books clubs. That's been happening in a number of school districts and states. So that is one example that comes to mind when when thinking about the ways in which taboo books can uh, become read. But I don't know to what extent that's becoming a major focus of uh, groups of, of students in schools. And I also think that in general, that line of thinking risks undermining the library itself. Because if we all sort of respond to this moment saying, well, you can get books on Amazon or at the public library, or we'll just send you free copies of the books that have been banned. In the long run, what we are doing is basically surrendering the concept of the library as a place and as a repository of books for, for all. And I do worry about that long-term consequence.
2: Right. And on this notion of, you know, how much attention to bring to these issues, you know, on, on the one hand, if, if it is well publicized, as you say, it gives people more of an opportunity to fight back. But I also feel like in our media environment today, like that could also just ramp up the hostility and the fervor with which the people who are in favor of the bans are, are acting as well.
3: Certainly, there is an interesting dynamic between national groups and state level um, politicians where, you know, they might be more reactive to local concerns than they would with uh, ideas or, or concerns that are coming from outside of their districts. And so that that is another dynamic to, to bear in mind when understanding this. But in our work, what we have tried to do is you know, stick firm to the belief that sunlight is uh, the best uh, medicine. And really, at a certain point, we felt it was necessary to shine a bigger, brighter light on this phenomenon. Because for those of us who have been following it closely, I think many of us, many people that I know around the country had observed the ways in which school districts were uh, maybe not following policies here, or maybe there weren't a written challenge form there. But it was really only when we put in the effort to chronicle and create this index of school book bans for the nine-month period that we did, and look at school policies and all the decision processes, uh, or frankly, lack thereof, was when we really realized just how extreme this problem had become. And our report found that 98% of the book bans in that 9-month period had been done without following these best practice guidelines that uphold and safeguard students first amendment's right first amendment rights and 98%. So in the vast majority of cases we looked at we we chronicled 1586 book bans I think the number is 36 of them went through proper committees and 1550 <laughs> did not. OK, and that's just uh, speaks to how extreme some of this has become, whether it's uh, leaders in Central York or politicians in Tennessee or groups in Texas. And that's what we're seeing is um, these clandestine efforts to remove books without following any kind of sense of transparency or public policy.
2: Okay. So, you know, as. As our listeners who are people who value and, and care about democracy and free speech and the, and the First Amendment, are there other things that they could or should be doing you know, right now as these uh, bans continue to, to pop up across the country?
3: Well, I think what we have to do right now is um, make people realize the extent of the problem and that there are things that they can do, that they can attend school board meetings, that they can make their voices heard. I think most polling shows that the majority of Americans do not support book banning. Nobody wants to live in a country that feels so retrograde. This is the 21st century. I can't believe that this is what we're all talking about. And so clearly that you know, belief has to be kind of instilled again in the rising generation in all of us as a threat to democracy that we must stand against. And so it's about redoubling our efforts to do so, to get involved, to speak with students, to speak with teachers and communities. And in a lot of parts of the country right now, teachers are very afraid. Librarians are operating in a climate of fear and and as our superintendents. And so how can we all, those of us who are parents or those of us who are um, close to schools, do our utmost to give support to those who are feeling that political climate right now. I think that there are a lot of ways that we can engage in solidarity, in empathy, but also in attesting to uh, the importance of democracy and standing quite firmly against book banning. It's not so hard to do. Just read something else if you don't like the book.
2: Well, Jonathan, thank you for all of your work and everything that PEN America is doing on this issue. And thanks for joining us today to talk about it.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks,
0: Jenna. That was a terrific interview. Really fascinating guy to to listen to about a a problem that I I think is a lot larger than I had recognized uh, before listening to the interview, at least in terms of the number of students affected, the number of states this is going on, and the number of school districts, and the way that it is inevitably going to spread. I would think at least through the election, as uh, it just sort of runs through the... uh, Runs through the internet. I, I was also thinking as I was listening to this and thinking about some of the books that are being banned and the general themes of identity and pluralism that are being excluded.
1: Michael, some of the thing that stood out to me as Jonathan was speaking is, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And, you know, what we're seeing is that there have been times before where there are reasons where... People want to diminish voices around some number of topics, and here, as the dem- the demography of the United States is changing, the demographic profile that you know Americans are becoming more accepting of marriage equality, are becoming more cognizant of mental health matters, are in some ways uh, trying to take steps towards racial egalitarianism and becoming, uh, you know, a true multiracial democracy, there are plenty of people who find those values problematic Mm -hmm. and, you know, turning to education is one way where people can say it's protecting children and protecting my child, because that is always a hard argument to fight against. Everybody wants to do the best for their children. But what we get lost in that argument is that we are in community with each other. So what the interest of your one child is, is not more important than the interest of the larger community and our community, nationally speaking, is one that is diverse. It is one that there are multiplicity of experiences and perspectives that have to be represented in, you know, ideally all of our institutions, including schools. So I don't know, I don't have a a way to round out the point, except to say that, yeah, you're right. I mean, libraries in particular are places where, are public spaces where people should be able to, uh, you know, Access a variety of materials. It's a it's a place where we sh- it's a place where we share. It's one of the few places that we share, and so it's dangerous to to try to exclude systematically various groups, perspectives, identities, yes, and so on.
0: So libraries are run
1: by librarians,
0: and librarians are professionals. It, it's not like these books are just flying in from outer space and ending up on the shelves mm-hmm. and, and uh, designed to offend the children in the school. That's not how things work. Librarians uh, very carefully cultivate. Uh, what's in their libraries based on you know, their understanding and their expertise about what's appropriate at different levels of schools. And then schools also have processes and procedures yeah. that they've put in place to do this so that there can be input from, health prof- from various kinds of professionals, from parents, uh, from other community people, from the teachers, and of course, from the librarians. And what's happening here that we see so much of these days is just a complete dismissal of these what i would call democratic processes legitimate democratic processes i mean this is how a pluralistic democracy works through differences and you have procedures you have institutions designed to do this you bring in various points of view
1: and you know i think that like if you if people want to challenge that's fine i think that challenges are fine but then if we have a process that is designed to put the challenge in deliberation and have a larger conversation and have community input. That's one thing, but to come on high and just kind of pull books off the shelf is quite opposite of law and order. It's opposite of going through the proper channels to make a a significant change in your community. I mean, for a candidate to say, "I, I wanna ban these 850 books, it's already a signal again, to go back to the point that I made earlier, it's not about the books, right? You know, I was reading this article about uh, like, you know, Jonathan's in Texas and there is a, a band of this author named Jerry, um, Jerry craft. And he has these two books. One of them is like called um, new kid, but you know, it's like this black kid in like middle school, he's the protagonist. And my son, And I were reading that book and it's so funny because there are certain things that are so specific to black culture that are in there. And just like if you if you know what that means, it's funny to you, but it's it's very awesome to see yourself and your family depicted in a book that you can get from your school or your public library. And so like this basically a keyword search about black kid you know, or something like that will eliminate is, is essentially going to remove that book from, from a, a state who is like almost majority minority, you know, it, 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 it's infuriating.
0: This conversation also, I mean, I, I makes me think, I hope people will take the time uh, to, to look at the uh, database of books. that uh, I'm sure Jenna will, will link to in the, in the pages and just go through some of those titles and think about how many of them you might have read uh, or how many of them you, you think just seem utterly and completely, you know, appropriate (laughs) Mm -hmm. for children to be reading that are now being excluded. And, you know, the fact that it happened, like it's a lot of it's happening right now in York, Pennsylvania, and and the fact that it's happening in York doesn't mean it's going to stay in York. Mm -hmm. We know full well that it's going to spread like wildfire.
1: So that's that's the other troubling part is that we're just kind of seeing this nationalization of what should be local locally authentically local discussions and deliberation. But but not only
0: local. I mean localism in school districts in American school districts has a long and rich history, right? I mean we believe in the idea that schools should be controlled uh, at the local level. But we put the responsibility for education at the state level. It's in all the state constitutions. Recognize the responsibility to education mm-hmm. and all of the states produce standards of some sort or another that are telling schools within their state what they think it is that their children need to learn. And you had all these school board elections. So yeah. you, you have all these, you're gonna have a lot of new people coming in and uh, you know, we don't know anything, uh, speaking as political scientists here in Canada, so we don't know anything systematically about who these people are mm-hmm. and what they're, what they're about, whether or not there was anything really unusual about this election, or if we only thought there was something unusual about this round of school board elections. But yes, I I mean, some of these things are being institutionalized into state laws, into state standards, and potentially onto the school boards as well.
1: Thank you, Jenna, for an excellent interview with Jonathan Friedman. I'm just really delighted that he was able to join us and tell us about the work that PEN America is doing around the issues of First Amendment, around book bans, so on and so forth. And thank you, Michael, as always. I'm Candace Swat smith for Democracy Works.
0: I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for joining us.
2: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer, editorial review by Emily Reddy, and additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group podcast network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.